Have you ever watched an episode of Sons of Anarchy and thought, this would all be better if they were riding giant pigs? Have you ever thought fantasy books could be improved with more colorful language? Or do you just really like orcs? Hang on to those thoughts. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author Jonathan French, who's best known for writing about a half-orc biker gang determined to protect their land. His book, The Grey Bastards, won the second-ever self-published fantasy blog-off and earned him a book deal with Crown Publishing Group. Jonathan's joined us today to give us a behind-the-scenes look at his journey as a writer and talk up his new book, The True Bastards. Let's jump right in, shall we? Jonathan, it's so great to have you here today. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. When was the first moment you thought you might want to be a writer? I know uh, you have a bit of a creative background, so I guess what made you decide Jonathan French, the writer, that's going to be me? Yeah, um, I was uh, wanting to be an actor for a really long time, for most of my life, and pursued that pretty heavily. And uh, in fact, in pursuing that, I ended up moving to Chicago when I was about 27. And it was about 11, 12 years ago now. And um, I just, I was, was, I was in a play and I I moved to Chicago knowing basically nobody in February, which if you know Chicago, that's not the best time to be there in February. It was super, super, (laughs) no, no. In fact, that year was particularly bad. And um, I didn't have really much money. I didn't have any friends to speak of at that point. I was loading trucks for UPS at uh, from like four in the morning till nine in the morning as my job, and oh, then wow. I was yeah, and so then I was and I was in this show, I was in this play, and um, I I started writing just as a way to, I mean, I'd always enjoyed creative writing as a student, you know, when I was in school, those are the those are the assignments I like to do, but um, I never really thought about it. I'd written some plays in college, and I'd actually produced a few. So, I mean, I'd done some semi-entrepreneurial professional writing, but nothing, not not like, oh, I'm going to write a book. You know, that wasn't ever really, I think a lot of people think, you know, maybe one day I will, but it wasn't, it wasn't ever a serious thought. And I, I just started, I didn't have a, a lot of, a, a lot of activity. I didn't have a lot to do and I was lonely. And so I just started writing this story and I kept doing it and finally I realized like there is a lot here and I was having fun with it and it was a, it was a fantasy story and it ended up being my first book uh, called the exiled air. And yeah, 18 months later I just had this manuscript, but about halfway through it, I like just didn't, didn't want to be an actor anymore. It just, it just, I was having so much fun writing this book and I just, it just bit so hard. It took over, it became its own beast. And, and I, you know, left, uh, left acting behind with no regrets, didn't, didn't think twice about it and started pursuing, you know, writing as a career and, and, you know, fantasy novels in particular. So I don't know, it, it happened pretty quickly. I mean, it was, you know, there's about, it was about a six month, six month thing. I, I moved to a city to do one thing. And within a half a year, I decided I wanted to do something else. So it was kind of a hard, you know, just like a hard reset. Yeah, I can imagine. Did you stay in Chicago when you started writing, or did you move back? I think you're from the Atlanta area. Yeah, I've I'm, I moved all over. Um, I came to Atlanta when I was, I guess, 13. I'd grown up a little bit. I was born in America, um, 
in Tennessee, but I grew up, uh, I spent some time in England uh, about four years as a kid. And so, and then I moved back here to the States and I was in Atlanta and then I ended up, so I, you know, I went all over the place. I went to New York for college and then all this. So I, I kind of bounced. Uh, I'm, I was, I was gypsy for a while and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I stayed in Chicago for like three and a half years and I got, I got my first book done there and, uh, you know, and started moving towards a traditional, you know, started querying agents and trying to feel out editors and all that stuff and didn't really get anywhere. And then somewhere in there, you know, you, you get married and you start having kids and everything just gets kind of put to the back burner. And, uh, so my first book just sort of sat as a manuscript for like two and a half, two and a half, three years and just didn't really do anything with it. And then, then finally I decided that I, I would self publish it. So I got on that road. And uh, did that for three books. And what led you uh, to make that choice? I know a lot of people kind of have a stigma against self-publishing or they're worried that trying to wear all of the entrepreneurial hats is a little bit much for them. So what what made that decision for you? Yeah. So as you say, like there, there, there can be quite a lot of scorn uh, around it. And there was much more back then. I mean, it's changed a lot in the last um, nine years. I mean, it seems like every year it gets a little better. I always liked doing my own thing. I was never afraid to do my own thing. I've been a starving artist my whole life. So I didn't have that bias, but there it was definitely there. And I ran into it a lot. But it was always in the back of my mind that it was an option. And I was doing some, some research. But I did try the traditional route first just because that felt more comfortable and more sure. And it, honestly, it, it felt like I could be lazier that way. I didn't have as much to learn. Like you say, like all of these hats you have to wear. And when that didn't really work, and a lot of that, I mean, you know, it's just hard, period, to to get a traditional publishing deal. It's it's always been traditionally hard, but I was trying to do it right when Borders Bookstore folded. They went out of business. And so it was really hard when that happened. Uh, basically, all the interest I had from agents that I had been cultivating just dried up. I mean, it just vanished overnight. And so... Um, Thankfully, I had a good friend who um, actually Gray Bastards is dedicated to. I had a good friend who was, you know, I, I trust him implicitly, but he's a he's a punk rock enthusiast. And, you know, people who know that scene, which I, I can't really claim to know it except through him. But, you know, punk rock has this sort of very much do it yourself, non-apologetic, screw the man type thing. And, and don't don't do what the studios want. Just do 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 you, you know, do your own thing. And he really pushed me. He just said, you know, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think it's the, what you should do. And so he kind of gave me that nudge to just do it. And I'm really grateful that he did because, you know, I did have to learn a lot and it was tricky and I wasn't that great at it. I mean, I did some things right and a lot of things wrong. And you do have to to wear like all these different hats, you know, marketing and, you know, editing. And you know, it, it is it's tough. But I think at the end of the day, it was like, I would rather have done that than not do anything at all. I mean, I have friends who just won't, they, they will never self-publish. They won't, they just, they, it's just not in them. They just cannot shake the fact that it's professional suicide. And it just, whether they want to admit it or not to, to, to my face or anyone's face, they really do just have a bias against it and they just won't do it. But my thing is, is that do you want to continue to go through life knowing that you've got a story or a book in you and not letting people see it? However, the delivery system is, you know, do you really want it just to languish in your in your head or on your hard drive or in a drawer? Or would you rather let it 
out into the world to be judged, you know? And so I, that for me was the thing. It was like, screw it. I want this to be seen. I want this to be read no matter how, how it takes. So I, you know, I, I went for it and, and, and I'm glad I did. And I think a lot more people are, and that's got positives and negatives. And, and, uh, you know, some of the stigmas are, are valid and some of them aren't. And it just really depends on who you're talking to and about what the time of day. But yeah, for me, it made sense. And ultimately it was a gateway into something else and that I wasn't close to that either. So I really think that who, you know, you know, I hate to give like advice and, and throw these like blanket statements out there, but you know, you really should be open to all things because there people have proven time and time again, not just me, but other, other writers that, that self-publishing doesn't really close any doors. And for the people that it does, like for the people who are going to close the door in your face, they're the wrong people for you anyway. So yeah, it didn't, it didn't have, it, it was never a fear factor for me. It was, it was just a matter of like, of figuring out all the steps and getting it done. Right. And I mean, like you're saying more and more frequently these days, we're hearing stories of self-published authors like yourself who make the transition into traditional publishing. And I suppose even if someone was worried about damaging their career, starting out self-publishing, there's also pen names, you know, you can always either self-publish under a pen name or maybe your traditional publishing name is not going to be your birth name. So there's a lot of options out there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and the thing is it, it really, it's, I was talking to Josiah Bancroft about this a little bit. Uh, we, we commiserate quite a bit cause we have a very similar story and, you know, we were talking about how we went, what I call swimming upstream in that a lot of people, a lot of authors do do both. They become hybrid. They transition from one to the other, but we kind of went the, the, the harder route, which is going from self to traditional. And there's a lot of traditional authors who decide to self publish later. Like you say, they're under a pen name or just because it makes sense. Cause after a certain point, I mean, if you've developed a readership and your, your fans are out there, they don't really care what, what method you use. They just want to read your next thing. And so it does make a lot of sense. And sometimes people do need to use a pen name to, to save some relationships professionally. If you have a longtime agent or a longtime publisher, you don't want to ruffle feathers. Maybe you self-publish under a pen name. The problem with that, of course, is that without that name recognition, your readers are, it's going to be harder for them to find you and follow you. But, you know, I think we're going to see as this industry changes a lot of cross-pollinization more and more and more. And, you know, I think that's a good thing, frankly. Yeah, I do too. Uh, creatively, uh, I know self-publishing, you don't have to follow any trends in market necessarily. You uh, can do whatever you want. You can be a lot more experimental. Uh, and then, I mean, traditional publishing is not going anywhere anytime soon either. Absolutely. Um, so uh, you mentioned The Exiled Air is your first book that you self-published. Uh, so that's a part of your Autumn's Fall series. Is that correct? Yeah, good man. Did your research. Thanks. <laughs> right on. <laughs> And uh, so that I believe you said before that came about from a role playing campaign that you developed. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. For the people who care, I mean, I, you know, it, it, nerds, we can like really get into this. Oh, I'm going to talk about my role playing game, and other people are like I don't care. But uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, so I had a great uh, group of gamer friends in Chicago, and they were all a little bit older than me. You know, like by like ten years or more. And I was born in 1980 and they all kind of came up m more in the glory years. Like, you know, they were playing in college and, and I was playing, I got roped in in 86. I was really young when I started gaming because I had an older brother and he and his friends were playing and they needed another player. So I got in really like kind of at the same time as them, but I was a different age. And so, um, we all had a lot of similar backgrounds, but I love not being like the most knowledgeable person in a room. I love I love it when someone else knows is more of an expert. 
So this group to me was just heaven because these guys had, they knew gaming backwards and forwards even more than I did. And they had played systems I had never played and, and all this. So uh, it was just in this crazy kind of cool creative headspace. And, and I was, I had already, already started like messing with this book a little bit in the story. And then I had, I had been playing with it in my head as, as a, as a thing. And then once we started gaming with this system called Harp, which is which was high adventure fantasy role playing, which was a spinoff of uh, Rollmaster, which is a simplified version of Rollmaster, which was produced by Iron Crown, um, and and that 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 had like a heyday. I mean, Rollmaster was huge in the eighties. Now now people don't really know what it is, but so we were we were using this system called Harp, and and I just it I'm not really a math guy. I don't I don't really know how to crunch numbers and do all this stuff very well. But somehow harp just made sense, and I suddenly like got it. I was like, oh, I get how this works. So I started, you know, building this world for, as like a full-on rule set with, you know, the races had rules and numbers and stats and you know abilities, and I was able to just really plug in and just start churning this out, and, and was able to codify it in a way that I hadn't been able to. And then also, you know, was writing the fluff for it and this background and all this history and. And it, so it was kind of happening in tandem. I was I was writing the book and and like working on the role playing game sort of at the same time. And I was you know, but at some point, I just sort of had to focus on the book and and just finish it. But yeah, it did. It you know, we only ran one game. There's only ever been one Autumn Spall game, and it was one session. And, and but there's you know two books, so it shows you kind of how how I had to lean uh, to, towards the end. But yeah, no, it was it was a good time. I I, I miss those guys. I miss those days. Because, you know, you'll never get that back. It's really hard to ever get that first pure creative experience with no pressure, no no expectations. You know, you, you don't know how anyone's going to respond. It doesn't really matter. You're just kind of in your creative bubble and it's it's just fun and it's all positive. And I'll always look back on that fondly because even now I haven't thought about it in that detail. But you asked the question and I can already feel myself sort of falling into this. Like, <laughs> yeah. God, yeah. So, no, it was, it was a good good times. And uh, you, I think you said, you, did you paint miniatures for that as well? Yeah, um, a few. I didn't really do as mu- as many for that um, as I as I did ultimately for for bastards. That's just sort of something I'm always messing with. I've been doing that since I was probably nine years old, so thirty years now. And I'm not very good, but I still do it. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, so it's just sometimes I get in these like spurts. It's like I'll just be really into certain aspect of fantasy and and just like dive into that and and i think a lot of us are like that i think we have sort of focused interests but we're cyclical in where we spend our energy and sometimes i get super into role-playing games sometimes i get super into miniature painting and war games sometimes i get super into like reading and writing and um and you know so yeah i mean miniatures are just a part of that um but i i ended up painting more during the gray bastards run-up than i did back then yeah, well, now that we're uh, talking about Grey Bastards, what's the origin story for that? How did Grey Bastards come around? Yeah, so, you know, memory memory is a tricky thing, and, and, and especially with something that's kind of done what it's done and taken off. It's like it, it sort of writes its own legend, and I have to do this thing where I'm like, is that really how it went? You know, because I need to, like, I, my memory is so weird. But um, uh, I had written two books in my Autumn's Fall series, and 
The second book called The Errantry of Bantam Flynn, which, like you said, there's a title that you can self-publish, but no traditional would touch with a 10-foot <laughs> pole. Um, but I, I wrote I wrote Flynn, and um, it was a 210,000-word just beast of a book, and I was really proud of it. And to this day, I still think it's my best work, but I needed – it was I just needed a break. I just thought, I don't know, and – and there were, you know, I, I just told myself, like, I just want to write something. And I said, I'll just cleanse the palate. And I didn't know what that was going to be. I didn't know if it was going to be a short story or a shorter book or whatever. And But I just, I foolishly, I think, and fortuitously, it was sort of dumb for me to do, but it ended up working out. I um, decided just to not begin writing book three of that series. Um, but I, I wanted to do something very different. And those books are multiple POV and there's, you know, they're they're really kind of, dense and they're you know there's a lot of cosmology and, and legendarium and plot and they're very much in the tolkien vein and i just wanted to do something different and i wasn't quite sure what so i'm not really sure in what order this happened you know all this sort of took place sort of simultaneously but over time but i was i was you know i've been watching a lot of um kind of hardcore tv like uh, spartacus the remake and and black sales and justified and sons of anarchy and like i was just all this stuff that was sort of sexy and raw and gritty and also had this sort of Western, you know, bend to it as far as like old West Cowboys. And I, I grew up on spaghetti Westerns. And so I was sort of thinking that, and then I was playing D and D fifth edition had been out for a little while. And I was playing that like everybody just really invested and um, was painting these half work miniatures and just getting into this one, one just thought process. And, and so I, I thought, you know, I'm going to, I had a gaming group going. I was back in Atlanta. I was here. I was away from my Chicago friends and had been for several years. I was a dad now. So just life was just really different. And um, I just, I thought, all right, you know, I'm going to run a game for my friends, my group. And, and we'd been together so long and they really like a strong starting point. Like they don't have a problem when one of us who's running the game just says like, this is what it is. You know, they, we are comfortable with each other. We don't feel railroaded. So I thought, you know, I want to make like, I just want to use these half orc models that I've been painting. And so I'm going to make a game where all the players are half orcs using D and D fifth edition, but I want them to be in this like mercenary company in this, in this sort of desert region, this badlands region. And they'd be, you know, riding horses. And I had this, you know, sort of godfather figure who at that point was called the Paymaster, who was just going to be the shadowy dude who paid them for jobs. And, and so I was kind of, you know, I have this, my, my lovely wife who is the first person to read anything I've read and she has a, a crazy amount of insight and a lot of good instincts. And she's also a writing um, major. So she got her degree. She's very well educated. And so I always run everything by her. And I was just sort of talking to her, like, you know, really excited about this game. You know, I'm going to run this game for the guys it's gonna be half orcs and it's going to kind of be like tons of anarchy. And uh, they're, you know, it's going to be, and she goes, Oh, are they going to, are they going to ride hogs instead of hogs? Like you're instead of, you know, big pigs instead of motorcycles. And I kind of thought, well, that's a little bit on the nose. Like, I don't know. Is that a little, <laughs> is that, is that kind of too much? Is that cheesy? You know, but I, and she says, well, I don't know. I think it'd be cool if you did it right. And then she just sort of looked at me and just very calmly, you know, very matter of fact, she just said, you know, why are you going to run a game when you could write another book? And, and I just said, you know, you're right. I, you know, it's, you know, it's true. And I had been looking for something to do different. So I, you know, kind of took the ideas and, and just sat down and started writing and just the first chapter just blew out of me. I mean, it just completely just flowed. It was really easy. And it's very much the, I mean, I don't really do drafts, especially not back then. And so 
it is very much like it was in, in, in the published version. There's really not a lot of difference between that, that first day and, and the, what the reader saw. And so, you know, and I kind of looked at it and I thought, God, this was a lot of fun. And, you know, the hogs work and I think I might have something here. And, um, so I showed it to her and she said, this is fantastic. She said, this is, you know, this is exactly what you need to do. And so I, you know, I thought this is it. So I limited it down. I made it one POV so that I could make a shorter book. And, you know, it was, a, I think ended up being like 135,000 words and which was way shorter than the last thing I just written and still not a short book. No, no, I don't, I, I don't do anything short, but uh, yeah, no, I, you know, and, but, and, and, and it served, you know, I was able to justify it because I was self-published and, and I was going to a lot of uh, events where I had my table and was doing panels at these conventions. And, you know, I, I think as you know, probably Atlanta is a great convention town. There's something going on practically every weekend. And so you can do the circuit and make a decent amount of money. It's just, selling your stuff at a table and signing to people who will take a chance on you. But one of the things I noticed after doing this for several years was that a lot of people didn't want to commit to a series that wasn't finished. And so I had these two books out and they'd be like, is it going to be a trilogy? And I'm like, well, it's probably going to be six or eight books. And they're like, wait, six or eight. And you only have two out. I'm, you know, and people have that attitude. I don't personally agree with it. I think if you want to support an author, you should read them while they're out because that's how you help them along the way, but whatever to each their own. Some people, they don't want to commit to a series till it's done. And so I thought this will be great. I'll have this standalone book so that when people say, I don't want to commit to a long-term series, I can point to the gray bastards and I can say that is one and done. Yeah, there you go. And so, um, I, yeah, so, and, and by the time it was done, I was really proud of it and I thought it was worth a, worth a, worth a shot. So, you know, I ended up querying it out traditionally. I ended up like pitching it. Uh, I didn't immediately self publish. I, I uh, went, tried to do the, the old, the old route and didn't get anywhere. So then I just thought, well, all right, time to do what I do and self-publish it. So I did. Yeah. And uh, I, I know you mentioned Sons of Anarchy. I, I definitely get that feel from reading The Gray Bastards. I think even in uh, your new traditionally published cover, it just looks to me like a Sons of Anarchy poster or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that was their, that was the publishers. Like I, I was a little bit like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I thought this is, a, this is just a little too much like, you know, mirror image, but they, they thought it was, they, they liked it and they wanted to do it. So I said, you know, I don't have a lot of choice. Um, but they, they leaned, they leaned really hard into it. And, uh, that, you know, Hey, I, at that point they, I was with the professionals. I was like, yeah, y'all do your thing. So. Yeah, and I mean, like you were saying with the literal hogs that they ride around, it may seem on the nose or it may work out really, really well. Uh, so personally, I think it's worked out well. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the consensus from people who have read it. People are having a lot of fun. I mean, I, I, I have people who dislike the books, but I, it, I've never heard yet, like, it's because of the hogs. <laughs> I've never heard people like, that was where you lost me. You know, it's, it's never it's never that. So, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I think I remember uh, you saying this in another interview before, but part of the origin for The Grey Bastards as well was you wanted to write something that could encourage boys to get into reading again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, that was – that. Yeah, see, yeah, you, that's why you do interviews so you remember stuff. It's like a journal. You, you sparked my memory. <laughs> um, yeah, so I – my experience as a, as an independent author, a self-published author who was out there just selling books was that women from – I'm talking teenagers all the way up to, you know, in their nineties would take a chance on a book, but man, getting the guys was just next to impossible. Like if they were younger than me, forget it. And, you know, I had, I commissioned a lot of artwork for both autumn's fall and gray bastards. And so I'd have all this artwork up and these guys would like come over and they'd, 
you know, they, they'd be like, Oh, awesome. This stuff looks really cool. And then, you know, they'd be like, I'm, I'm, and then they would like start having a conversation like in front of me to each other be like, I'm going to play a character like that in our next game and like point to one of my art pieces and be like, well, read the book and you'll know more about them. And they just wouldn't, or they would ask things like, you know, yeah, I just play video games. So if this ever gets turned into a video game, then sweet. And I was just sitting there like super disappointed and really pissed off. Honestly, it was just like, what the hell? You know, like, this is sad. And so there was a part of me that just had this stupid crusade idea. You know, I just got this wild hair. It was like shame on my gender. But then I thought, is there just nothing out there for them? Is is it just that they they just don't feel like there's anything compelling and video games are just way more compelling? And so, you know, I did sort of lean into the the the, the male aspect. You know, I mean, the books, it's it, it's there's a lot of cursing. There's a lot of sex appeal. There's a lot of uh, violence. And so there was sort of like that idea of maybe I can skin this more in the in the language, and the aesthetic of what they're seeing in video games. Um. I don't know ultimately that that worked at all. I don't think I succeeded one way or the other. Um, and, but I will say now that I'm on the other side of it and I'm with, you know, a big publisher and, and all that, most of the fan mail I get is still from women. And some people take issue with this. You know, so a lot of guys will, will almost get offended. Like, you know, I read, how dare you? And it's like, you, you might, but the statistics aren't really backing it up. Like, I don't feel like that for the most part, men are reading anymore. And if they are, they're not reading fiction or not, you know, not buying. You know, so and and I'm sure that there are people out there that will say I'm wrong. And I'm sure there are other authors who be like most of my client, most of my readership is male and good for you. But my my experience has not been that. And it, it and, and so most of the, the, the interactions I've had on both sides of the publishing aisle, on both sides of that fence, whether self-publishing or traditional with big five, most of my major interactions with readers have been with female readers. So. I think that they are sort of the, the, the powerhouse. I think that women are dominating and, and, and in this, this uh, form of entertainment, I think they are the ones that are buying books. So, you know, if you can get them, if you can earn them, then you're doing a great thing, but I still would love to see more guys flock to it. Uh, I, you know, not just like, as a, you know, like, Oh, I need more people buying my books. Of course, I, every writer needs more people buying their books for the most part, but it isn't just that selfish bottom line. You know, I need royalties. It is sort of this uh, philosophical issue that I'm having, and and I just I just want I want to be convinced. I want to see and and be convinced that that there are still some dudes out there who are literate and reading and enjoying it and stretching and 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 I'm right now I'm not. I'm just I got to be honest. I'm not there. I'm not I'm not convinced right now. Right. Well, a lot of uh, you saying from video games that grit, that darkness, uh, that violence. So would you? Describe Grey Bastards as a grimdark book. I know grimdark is a bit of a nebulous term, and everyone has their own definition for it. But uh, would you personally consider it that way? No, I I don't. Um, there is, you know, I don't, I don't, I stay away from a lot of the Reddit stuff, and I don't have a problem with Reddit. I just don't like to lurk on the internet. I have, I have a seven year old son. I spend my time as much as I can away from a screen, so I try to stay away from it. But I've seen like some chatter, and some people have have. have pointed me in directions of things where it's brought up and, and, and this consensus seems to be amongst hardcore grimdark fans that it isn't, um, that there, that it, the book is shockingly moral, uh, that there, that for the most part, the characters, the main characters, you know, are fairly moral, even with the violence level. And I think that's the difference. I think 
I think, you know, violence and sex and leaning into the fact that kids shouldn't read this fantasy book doesn't necessarily mean it's a grim, dark book. I think there is, uh, I think there is this sort of moral and very realistic approach to grim, dark where it strikes this tone like Abercrombie does and like Mark Lawrence does where, uh, People are just people and they make a lot of shitty moves. They make a lot of bad decisions and a lot of immoral and kind of evil things, even if they're not necessarily entirely bad to rotten to the core themselves. And I think that mirrors our own world a lot. And while I am proud of gray bastards and I think that there, there is a lot of truth in it. And I think that I captured and succeeded in capturing some, some universal things in, in human experience I don't think that I was successful in striking that tone of morally gray and that, you know, I think in moments it happens, but I wasn't trying to do that. I think there, there is an argument to be made that the book is more in the vein of like old school Conan and sword and sorcery where, you know, it's a hard life and it's sort of violent and bloodthirsty, but you know, you still are able to see who the hero is. I mean, like Conan isn't in the original Robert E. Howard stories. He's not Superman. I mean, he's, he's not a paragon. He's not, uh, you know, he, he calls women hussies and he smacks them on the butt and he, you know, I mean, he's not, he's not a very woke individual. He, he doesn't, but he's also not an, an amoral sociopath either. He does still come across as sort of a noble barbarian who has a sense and a code that he lives by. And he's still the hero you can root for. And you never really, at least I don't feel like you ever are uncomfortable with him as a hero for the most part. And I think with true Grimdark, you usually are. I mean, you know, you read Prince of Thorns and, you know, Jorg makes you really uncomfortable. Like it's and he's meant to um, Abercrombie's characters, you know, Logan and, and Glockta and all those. They make you really uncomfortable. I don't know for the most part that Jackal and Oates and Fetch, I don't really know that they do that. I think at the end of the day, they, they come across more like Knights of the Round Table in a way, but they just really like sex and swearing. So while they're not like super noble and Knights in Shining Armor, they're still very much, there's this kind of uh, honor system that they have amongst what they do. And so, no, I mean, personally, I don't, I love that the Grimdark fantasy fans are coming to it. I love that there are bastards fans who are also huge grimdark fans because grimdark fans are great and they're, they're really ravenous readers. And, and the, the fact that there, there is a bit of, of bleed between what I did with gray bastards and, and, and grimdark. And as you said, there's also bleed within grimdark. I mean, I think there's, that's true amongst any genre. I mean, I think it's really hard to codify a lot of genres, but no, I mean, I, you know, welcome Grimdark. I certainly think that there's a lot there for people, for Grimdark uh, fans to enjoy. But I, I don't, I, me personally, no, I, I don't, I did not set out to write a Grimdark book, nor do at the end of the day, do I think I accidentally succeeded in writing one. Right. And I mean, like you're saying with genres and subgenres, I feel like there's no clear lines really between any of them. And a story can be multiple at once. So it's kind of just, I guess, a starting point for people to find books they might like. Yeah, I yeah, I I totally agree with that. Um, and so uh, you mentioned Mark Lawrence, so I, I guess that kind of leads me into uh, the self-published fantasy blog off. Uh, so how did you hear about that? So I was still on Facebook back then. I'm not anymore, but um, 
I was part of this this thing called the I, I'll get to try to get this right. The Grimdark Readers and Writers Facebook group was, I think, what it was called. I, I don't remember if that's exactly it or not. And um, the guy that was one of the moderators, one of the creators, Rob Matheny, reached out to me. Uh, and, and just I think he was the one that put it on my radar. And, there, and Thomas Clues was another guy on there. And so I'm not sure like who spoke to who first, how the book got on whose radar or what. But somehow Bastards and its cover and all this like got on there. And so I, I joined this group. I joined the Grimdark Readers and Writers Facebook group. And I was just sort of lurking around. I didn't really engage that much because I don't ever really on anything. And um, and then and then somebody, I think it was Rob or somebody posted this this thing, this self-publishing fantasy blog off or Spiffbo. So I thought, you know, screw it, whatever. You know, the book had been out a few months and I wasn't really sure. You know, it wasn't doing like all that well. It was all right. And uh, I thought, you know, hey, all he's saying, uh, all Mark Lawrence is saying with the contest is, is that there's no prize but exposure. And that's really it. So I thought, how could it, why, you know, it, it can't hurt. So, yeah, I, I entered and as they say, the rest is history. I mean, it, it ended up being a, a life changing thing for me uh, across the board. I, it was nothing but positive and it will it will forever be the, the keystone to the whole thing. I mean, it was the turning point. Um, so. Yeah, smartest thing I ever did, <laughs> and thank and thank God Mark did it. I mean, you know, he's I'm I'm indebted to that man till the end of time. So, yeah, and I I believe the year you entered in the self published fantasy blog off, which I'm just gonna call Spiffbo because that seems a lot easier. That a boy, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I think that was the second year of the contest that you yeah, were in it. That's right. And, yeah, uh, that year in particular stands out to me as. Uh, a really strong sense of community from the authors that were involved with it. So I guess, do you still uh, keep in touch with any of those other authors? Yeah, I do. And all of that is 100% because of Dirk Ashton. I mean, there, and I'm not saying, I mean, a lot of people online, if you know Dirk or if you've seen him on Twitter or Facebook, a lot of people love to make Dirk like kind of a joke because they can, because he's such a cool guy. And he's so laid back, but no, all, in all seriousness, Spiffbo year two, we were close because we had Dirk. And that's all there there is to it. I mean, I'm not saying that all the other people on there weren't gems and weren't great people, but we had a cheerleader in him. We had this genuine just mascot of a man who was also a killer writer and a gracious contestant. And I, you know, I told him he was the hub of the entire wheel. He was the hub of that wheel. And if it weren't for him, I, I think I don't think we would. I think we would have been like some of the other classes or, you know, or, you know whatever we, we want to call them contestants like he melded us all together in a way that I don't think can be repeated because there's no one like him. And so, uh, yeah, but you're, I mean, I, I have that same sense of that, that the community was stronger with us than it's ever been, but I always feel a little bit shitty saying that. Cause I feel like I'm being kind of, you know, arrogant in some way or saying, Oh, our Spiffbo is better than everyone's. And I'm looking at it a little and like, I don't want to downplay anyone else's experience with the contest, but no, I really think you're right. I think that there was a different feel then. Yeah. And I, I know, so you did end up winning the contest. I don't think we've actually said that yet. Uh, oh, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the book, the, I try not to say that. I feel like the book won. You know I mean? Yeah, it benefited me. But, you know, I, I don't know that I would have won had I entered a different book. So Bastards won. Yeah. Sure. And so something that in uh, doing a little bit of research for this interview jumped out to me was you were actually, I believe, contacted by your eventual editor from Crown before you or before the gray bastards won, right? That's right. Yeah, that that's absolutely true. Um, yeah. So it, this is such a tricky thing to talk about because, uh, 
early on, especially even within the early days of that top 10, when we made the top 10, um, the, the scores were very high. And I was trying to not engage with the chatter of that started to happen, which was mathematically gray bastards can't lose. And, da, 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 and that, that started. And I just I didn't want to go there. I felt like, A, it would make me seem it would just make me seem like a bad person and a, a poor contestant. And B, I thought it was I was superstitious. I didn't want to jinx myself. So I didn't want to like play into any of that. Um, but the numbers were high, and it really it it was just it was r rolling full steam ahead, and and the reviewers were all really into it, um, thankfully. And so you know, I think that well, I know that the editor at Crown, his name is Julian. I don't want to just call keep calling him the editor, but Julian had been following the contest. I'm pretty sure he had followed it a little bit the year before. And the way he is, I mean, this is the same guy that, you know, found found the Martian, right? So he, as as an editor, he's very much into looking at what else is going on. You know, he's 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 a traditional New York publishing guy, but he has a, a habit of keeping his finger on the pulse of what's happening in the indie world and and what's happening in the self-publishing world. Uh, you know, and so he he saw that the book was um, just kind of crushing it in the top 10. And so he decided to take a look at it. And so he had read it when he contacted me and I hadn't, the, the contest was still not, not, not over. And so, um, I did tell him, I said, look, you know, I am interested in, in talking to you about, about transitioning this book over to your, your publishing house, which is crown, which was under penguin random house. And I said, uh, but I, I really want to see where this goes. Like I started this as a self-published author and I, that's how I want to finish it. And so he was cool with that. And, um, and so that's what we did. We, we even though I was contacted prior, I waited till I till the book won before actually like making the deal. Right. So how uh, I guess a lot of people outside of the traditional publishing industry, they kind of view them largely as gatekeepers or people who maybe are more interested in money than in your career as a writer. But that's people who don't have that inside experience. And I think. I was reading, again, past interviews that you'd done, and it sounds like uh, Julian did a lot to help you early on. Like, uh, he actually contacted agents for you. Is that yeah, correct? That's that is that, that's true. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it, I used to be one of those people. Like, I wasn't as, as sort of outspoken as somebody like Joe Conrath or somebody saying, oh, you know, uh, traditional is evil and don't sign these deals. And I mean, I, I wasn't that that uh, zealot, you know, wasn't that fanatical. And I, and I like Conrath. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I don't. Um, and, and he gave, he, I read his blog for years and got a lot of good advice from him, but um, uh, I did sort of feel like that they were gatekeepers and it's hard not to. I mean, all of us who query and submit and agents either don't reply or they, they deny you and, and it, it did gets frustrating. So um, yeah, uh, I, I've, I had that feeling and there are still people I know who, who have that feeling and I, and who's for me to tell them they're wrong, but I can tell you that my outlook is entirely switched. I mean, I, I'm completely the other way. I, I don't, I don't think that everyone needs an agent. I don't think that I'm better because I have one as far as like better, uh, you know, I'm better than you. I think though that I have more support now. Um, I think that I don't know how I did this without my agent now that I've had her for as long as I have for the last couple of years, it's hard to look back and go, God, how did I ever do this alone? So my experience was that very different. 
I was very fortunate. Most people query and query and query, and hopefully they get an agent to finally say, I want to, I want to represent you. Um, but there are a lot of people that never get that chance. And I'm aware of that. And I was one of those people. I was mostly was ignored. I didn't even get denials. I just got nothing, just crickets, just no, no replies. And, um, I could have stayed one of those people very easily, but Julian, while he could have just said, here's the number I'm going to offer. And I'm, you know, he could have done a direct deal. He could have just been an editor and just said, here's, here's the money we're offering. And, but that's not the way he likes to work. And he said, look, I, I want this formally pitched to me. So you need representation. And he said, would you be okay with me contacting some people that I think would be good, a good fit for you in this book? And I said, sure. So he contacted three agents on my behalf. Two of them got in touch with me. Both of them had already read the book. Both of them enjoyed it, knew it like the back of their hand. They were very professional. They were very knowledgeable. They were very passionate. Both of them had been in the industry a while and, and knew what they were doing and had both of them had crazy good resumes. And I had to make a choice and it sucked because, you know, that is not a position a lot of authors find themselves in. And here I am having to make that call and I have to go with one agent and tell the other one, I really appreciate it, but I'm going to go the other direction. Thank you, but no thanks. And that was a tough couple of days. And, and, and there, you know, I've had friends say, oh, poor pitiful you, like, you know, you know cry me a river. You, you know, you got your choice of agents. But I had to go with the one that I felt the most kinship with and the most trust. And I, I know I made the right call and she's fantastic. And I've never felt like someone had my back the way she does. And she doesn't, she, she is so professional and so knowledgeable and she, she doesn't, she doesn't bullshit me. She doesn't allow me to bullshit myself. And um, so I am completely converted. But I know that if it's at the end of the day, this is still an interpersonal thing. This is what you got to realize. Big publishing is still made up of people. And while I have met a lot of people that are very passionate about books and who really want to connect with um, good stories and, and, and authors and all that, they just love books and writers and all that. That's been my experience. There isn't anything to say that that is everyone's experience. In fact, I know it isn't. I know people who have not gelled well with their representation, who their agents have not had their backs the way they probably could or should, and who just see them as, you know, another author in the stable. And they, you know, so you hear horror stories on every side of the fence. I think the important thing is it's really hard to get to that point where you can have a conversation with an agent, but if you are having that conversation and you don't really feel great about it or an editor or anyone, you know, if you're anyone that you're going to be working with and it just doesn't feel like a good match, then you need to listen to that because they, they're not a golden ticket. They'll tell you that if they're, if they know what they're doing, they will tell you there are no guarantees in this. And both my editor and my agent, both of which have done major books that have done major things have told me there's no guarantees. We can't, we can't do that. And so, you know, I think that if you have a team, then good for you. And whether you build that team as a self-published person by surrounding yourself with other self-published authors and surrounding yourself with freelance editors and great freelance um, cover artists and all that and marketing people, then you have a team. And if you trust them, then great. And if that team also comes from a big publisher and, and, and you gel well with them and, and you work well together, then great. I think anyone laboring alone, and some of us have to do it forever, but I think anyone laboring alone is, in, is, is at a severe disadvantage. But I don't think that those people are less than me. I think that they need to keep going like I did because I was alone for many, many, many years. So, you know, 
it, who, however you can keep going, however you can find some gumption and some grit and you can keep going, then that's absolutely what you should do. And don't look down on yourself for not having an agent, not having an editor. Don't like, you know, but also don't sound like, and the thing is, I don't know. I've kind of been rambling. You kind of got me going here, but like, <laughs> here's the thing. Like if you are, I don't like poll. I mean, I know the country and everything's very polar. Everything is all, oh, there's a right and a wrong. And it's a good versus an evil battle across the board. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. You know I mean? I got into like a Twitter discussion about, you know, freaking Warhammer today. And it was just like, Jesus, like, what are we doing? You know, it, it, it just, I think it, it, here's, here's the thing. If you are drawing a hard line in the sand, one way or the other, if you are saying, oh, you know, self-published authors are never going to have the advantages that traditionally published authors are, and they're at a severe disadvantage, and there's no way they can be successful, then you're a snob, and you, you're wrong. But if you're a self-published author who's sitting there saying, oh, the gatekeepers and traditional publishing is dying, and there's no way, all they're, they're just out to screw you, and then you're a rube, and you're ignorant, and you're wrong you can find a nice balance and you just got to keep going. But if you're shutting out anything, if you're closing yourself off to anything because of some just staunch stance, then you're doing yourself a disservice. You got to be malleable. You got to be willing to, to roll with it and you got to be willing to let other people in, but trust your gut and let the right people in. Anyway, w you know, whenever we want the closing prayer, we can have it, but I'm just, <laughs> that's my rant. But, but you know, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's always fascinating to hear from someone uh, who has experience from both sides because there's not a ton of people out there who have that. Uh, so thank you for the insight. Hey, you know, you, you, be careful what you ask for, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so your latest book, uh, as the time of this recording, it's getting ready to release uh, The True Bastards. But when people are hearing this, it'll have been out for a little while. So book two. Is it as hard as everyone says? Uh, I know this is the first time uh, doing the entire process start to finish through the traditional publishing. So I guess what's your experience been like with that? Oh, you mean like the curse of the sequel, like the, the sophomore effort? You talking about that? Ah, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so mine, it's a tale of two cities, man. It was the best of times and the worst of times. Like uh, it started off, uh, I was still, I was by myself. I hadn't gotten the call yet. I hadn't won hadn't won Spiffbo yet. I started True Bastards when I was still just doing my thing. And I had had a really terrible 2016. It was awful personally. I had a lot of issues and depressions and, you know, all this stuff. And I didn't get a book done in 2016. I didn't even get close to a book done in 2016. And uh, I thought, never again. I don't want to go another year where I don't do that. So January 1st, 2017, I started a bastard sequel and it was because it had been doing so well in the contest that i was just like you know there were already people asking about it through spiffbo so i was like this it just makes sense as a self-published guy i need to give the audience what they want so i started writing it and i got like seventy thousand words in just in less than two months i mean that's fast for me i was flying and then i got the call <laughs> from from julian and not it's not his fault but the whole train went off the rails at that point because here I was, you know, back in this happy state of just cranking out this book. I was really having a good time writing. And then suddenly all this pressure of traditional publishing and New York and, you know, signing a deal and having an agent. And it was all very positive, but it was also really stressful. I mean, it was a lot of anxiety because I felt like that they were going to, like, figure it out at any second. They were going to be like, this guy is not worth it that I was going to do something wrong. I was going to piss somebody off and they, they were going to realize, oh, we made a mistake signing this guy. So I was paranoid that, you know, this life changing event with the rug was just going to get ripped out from under me. And so 
And I was also having to go back and look at Grey Bastards because they wanted to like give their own polish. And there were some things. And, and I sort of told them, I was like, I did not want anyone who had read the self-published version to have to reread Grey Bastards in order to move forward for, with the series. So my thing was, if the only one you'd ever read was Grey Bastards self-published, I wanted you to be able to pick up True Bastards without a problem. Not, and I told them that. I said, look, we cannot change this book to the point where it's, it's unrecognizable. And they were cool with that. So there's very little difference. There's a couple additions and some neat little scenes that got added in and, you know, some like polish up different word choices and whatnot. And I think I had to cut the word fuck out of it like 40 times. But like other than other than that, like it was not that different. But that derailed me writing True Bastards. And so that's when that that pressure of the second book hit. And so I was I thought I could because I had been flying on it and done it so fast I thought I could deliver it to him pretty fast uh but I I couldn't I I didn't and so I would I would hit deadlines but these drafts just wouldn't be anything I was happy with and and they would have editorial notes but they weren't upset that but I was upset I didn't like what what I had done with the book and so I just got more and more in my head about it and uh so yeah it it did so I think it did get hard, and so that curse of the of the of the second book did hit. But what I my thing is, and this dovetails back to what I said about Exiled Air and that 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 creative bubble that it's never going to be that good again. I think that the second book has gotten a bad rap because what it is, it's not the second book; it's the first book with a major publisher. And I'm not blaming major publishers for that, but what I'm saying is that if we take self publishing and don't think about that, let's just say that all authors go the traditional route just for the sake of this this example so if you think about that that means that most authors write their first book with just like anyone they don't know what they don't know they're going to have a publisher they don't know they're going to have an agent they are just in their happy place they are writing a book they don't they want it to go somewhere but there's no pressure they don't know anyone they are in their house on their word processor just being happy clicking away and that's it so then that book gets picked up and that book suddenly gets signed and you have a deal and you have deadlines and you've got an advance and you've got all this stuff. So it's not the second book. It's the first book with all of that pressure. I mean, I wrote three books with not a problem because I self-published all three of them. I wrote Exiled Air, Antry of Bantam Flynn, and Grey Bastards. Never, ever, ever had an issue. Never. I mean, yeah, I'm a slow writer, but it wasn't ever like, oh, I'm, I'm – losing my mind. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to disappoint everyone. Oh my God. No, that was not my experience. I wrote those three books and had fun doing it. And, you know, and that was it. So it's, it's, it's that first book when, when suddenly you are in the game, when you are like, you have the support and you've got the pressure and, and everyone's looking at you and it, it's, you know, it's, it, I've used this analogy before. It's like Aragorn versus it's like Strider. It's Strider versus Aragorn, right? Strider is just on his own. He's like, I'm a ranger. I do my thing. I patrol the borders of Hobbiton. I sort of mess around in Arthedain and make sure everything's cool. But I, no one knows who I am and no one knows I have any pressure and it's all good. And I, I, I'm comfortable being Strider. But then it becomes time to like step up and you got to be Aragorn and you got to like, you know, reforge the sword and you got to join the fellowship and you have something, have a team and there's a mission and you have all these other badasses backing you up. But that's a lot more pressure because suddenly it's not just you alone. It's it's this it's this publisher and this editor and this agent, all of which kick ass. And, you know, they're offering you my bow and my axe and they're like right there with you. But it's just like 
shit, like, what am I going to do? And, and am I the weakest link in this chain? And that's what starts getting to you, I think. At least that's what get, got to me. And so, yeah, it was tough, man. Like, writing that second book was a 25-month process from start to finish. I started it January 1, uh, 2017, and I did not get done till like February of 20, 2019 of this year. Um, so it was, it was a rough thing, but hell, you know, I mean, it's out and I'm, I'm through it and I'm glad and it will, it will be out when people listen to this and hopefully, you know, it'll, it'll still hit and people will really dig it and they won't, it won't matter that, or maybe it will matter, but in a good way that I went through all that, who knows? Right. Uh, so I guess, uh, for the foreseeable future, I imagine, uh, you're, Upcoming writing is going to focus on the Lotlands, uh, Gray Bastards, three and four, whatever those titles may be. So what? What after that? Uh, considering returning back to Autumn's Fall, maybe something new. Uh, yeah, uh, I kind of project. Yeah, I have to. I have to get back to Autumn's Fall personally, as well as for the people who've been waiting for so long. I mean, there's not many of them, but they're they're growing every day because uh, bastards and people are discovering the other books through that book. So. Um, yeah, I mean, personally, I need to get back to that story. It's been too long, and and I am so grateful for what's happened with the Bastard series. But and they have they saved they saved my career, they changed my life. Um, but I, you know, I started something and I need to finish it, and that's still a a, a series that I have a lot of passion for. So, um, you know, I mean, best laid plans, right? I mean, who knows? I, you know, I do get offers to do other things that have that have come up since Bastards because you know you're on more people's radar. Um, that I've mostly been able to turn down, but there could be something that I can't turn down. So I, I'm hope I'm hoping that nothing else gets in the way of me returning to Autumn's Fall. But you know, you got to do what's right for the family and the bank account and all that. So I can't say for sure, but I will say that once my plan is that once the first bastard series is done, um, I will return to Autumn's Fall, and then you know maybe I could do like a follow up um, series, another bastard series that's like you know kind of a different scope or whatever, but, um, yeah, I, I, you know, short answer. Yes. Autumn's fall next. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so one, one final question, uh, that I'm always curious about with authors, what's a book or a comic or a role-playing game or movie or something you've consumed recently, uh, that you've really enjoyed and you just can't shut up about. God, so that's a that's a great question, um, and it's it's like one of those ones where it's like oh, I'm on the spot now and crap. Um, I uh, I recently played, and I'm a little bit behind, but I recently played God of War, the the reboot on PS4, which I guess is the fourth or fifth game in the series, but it's the the big fancy one where you have you know your Kratos, but you have a son now, and and it absolutely just like. It, it grabbed hold of me and didn't let go. I mean, I, I, it hit, it hit all the right buttons. It was like, I hadn't been playing video games for a long time. Cause I just hadn't had the time and the way that they crafted not only the story, but the gameplay. And I guess because I have a son who's about the same age uh, as Atreus, I, I just, I just went in whole hog. Like it was just like, I was living it, you know? <laughs> and I just, and I was, and I was just talking to my wife about it just before this podcast, which is, I guess why I'm using it as my answer. Just, the, the drama and the action and they did what kind of you wouldn't think could be done. They went to Norse mythology and used Thor and Loki and Odin after like the Marvel movies, which that's a big risk because, you know, 
a lot of people in their in their headspace right now, you know, Thor is Chris Hemsworth and Loki is, uh, you know, Tom Hiddleston. And, you know, it's like the, you, you, you use those names and people's brains automatically go like in one direction for the most part. That's what the, the zeitgeist is, is Marvel. And, and I love that God of War, whether they, you know, just didn't care. They're like, look, we have our own story to tell and we have our own um, uh, way that we're going to tell it. And, and we have our own take on this mythology and we're confident in it. And I think that is such a huge lesson because whether you are doing something like, you know, that's for me as a fantasy author, there's always that fear. It's like, has this been done before? You know, are, are you just rehashing old ground? But if you have that passion and that just confidence that, no, I have something to say. And even if it seems sort of like the same stuff that every people have been doing, I do have something to add and I do have a unique uh, perspective then that's huge because I think that I think that that's elusive for a lot of people. I think they get bogged down in the worry and there's a lot of analysis paralysis. And I see on threads all the time on Goodreads and Reddit, like sometimes I'll get these notifications and a lot of them are just people like, is this a good idea or is this done to death or should I? And, da, da, da. and it's like, well, I think if you're asking the question, then no, because you'll know when it's when it's your baby. It's Frankenstein's monster, man. I mean, it's like that. I got it. This I got to finish it. This is the book. I got to keep going. And so, yeah, I mean, just this video game where I get to be sort of like any good role-playing game. You know, I always like to play the big barbarian with the axe. It's probably because I was the, you know, skinny, bullied kid. So you sort of always go the other way. It's like, I'm going to be the guy that could never be bullied. But um, you you give me a big, like, barbarian with an axe, and I'm usually in. But when you give me a big barbarian and an axe who's basically unkillable, but the the whole thing of the game is you got to protect your son, that to me – is such that you will get me with that every time because that's the Superman thing. It's like, yeah, you can't hurt Superman, but what you do is you start throwing people, innocent people off buildings and, you know, force him to save everyone. And that's how you get him. And so it's, it's that to me is such a compelling thing. It's like, you are a God of war. You are practically invincible and immortal, but you are looking after this life that you are responsible for. And so just being in that and being able to like, you know, constantly, fight with your son but also be trying to keep him from becoming you and you know it just it 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 just bit me deep and so i i was all in and i you know i so there it is that's the one i can't stop talking about clearly right there (laughs) (laughs) uh well jonathan french thanks again for coming on the podcast today it's been an absolute blast oh yeah i hope so i was for me you can find jonathan french on twitter as at j french author or on his website jonathanfrenchbooks.com. And while true bastards may live in the saddle and die on the hog, true fans of the series take the time to leave the books a review on Amazon, or Goodreads, or just chuck a copy of the books at your closest friend. Links to Jonathan French's books and social media are in the show notes. Don't forget to check out his Autumn's Fall series if you've already tried and enjoyed his Lotlands novels. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyn.com or on Twitter and Instagram at the Fantasy End. If you enjoyed this interview, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review, comment on the blog post, or just tag us on Twitter to let us know what you thought. And don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's it for this week. See you next time.